Good morning. Our Bible reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. It's on page 1208 of your few Bibles, and I'll just give you a minute to find that page. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Thank you, Richard. Good morning, everybody, and uh, Happy New Year. I hope you all had some good holiday celebrations over the last few days. Now, this is a new year, and a new year is a time to make new commitments. There are new opportunities, new people to meet, new experiences to have, new places to visit, all COVID permitting, of course. Uh, And this is a time to update our bucket list, as it were. And some of the highlights include going to the gym, eating more healthy, saving money to buy a car or something expensive, learning a new foreign language, or the most recommended, reading the Bible in a year. And these are all fine resolutions, and everybody has different circumstances, and they make different resolutions. But I wonder, I wonder if anybody has on their list of resolutions for 2022 visiting Area 51. Anybody? Anybody thinking about adding area, visiting Area 51 to the resolutions? Well, it's, I'm, not, I'm not surprised, but let me tell you a bit about that and see if you change your mind. Area 51 is a military base in the Nevada desert in the US. It's one of the most secretive and restricted places on the face of the earth. Uh, it was built in the 50s during the Cold War, and the government did not officially recognize its existence until 2013. You can't visit, members of the public are forbidden to enter. Only about a thousand people work there and they come from different states. You can't draw close, you can't come near. Uh, If you try and take pictures, if you try and trespass, you risk being shot at. Uh, Google Maps had this place only shown up on its maps in in recent years. Uh, This is a very secretive place. 
Nobody from the public knows exactly what happens there, but it's likely something to do with weapon technology and espionage programs. Some, some believe that this whole military camp is just a cover for government research into alien life. Uh, think how heavily underground labs where the government keeps and studies UFOs and maybe live aliens. When I say some people, I'm talking about in 2019, a somewhat serious Facebook page invited people or proposed to storm the area. And 1.5 million people signed up RSVP'd for the event and more than a million said they want to do it. Everybody wanted to see those aliens. So how do you feel about Area 51? I guess if you accept the conspiracy theories and you believe in extraterrestrial life, this would be a dream come true to finally see those green-bodied aliens you know, what could be more exciting than that? But for the majority of us, if not all of us, we can't be bothered. We wouldn't care less about Area 51 because we're not into that stuff. Whatever it is going on there, it doesn't concern us. Area 51 may be the most restrictive, most secretive place in the face of the Earth, but if, if it's, it's of no interest to us. However you feel about Area 51, I think that's how we often relate to God. On one hand, you believe God exists, but he's inaccessible. He's high in the sky, removed from you, and you're, he's surrounded by rules and laws that make him unaccessible to you. You can't measure up to God's standards, and you, you're trying to comply but by God's laws, but you always end up failing. You wish to see God, but you can't. God is holy and righteous, but you know you're not. You're guilty of breaking God's laws and disobeying his commands. You'd be thinking, why would God welcome me? Why would God receive me? Shouldn't he be angry at me? On the other hand, you may be skeptical about this whole thing. God exists, yeah, sure, but you don't want to see him much. Of course, you, you wouldn't say it in those words. You wouldn't put it that way but you're satisfied with the way things are. God can keep to himself, and you will do the same. There are other interesting things in life that you want to do. Living for God is tiring, and you find it boring sometimes. You'd rather be doing something else. Wherever you stand on this issue, I want to invite you this morning to reevaluate your position by taking another look at the God who came down. That's what the writer of the letter to the Hebrews is trying to tell his readers. He's writing to a group of people for centuries believed that God is inaccessible, is not accessible. And they weren't wrong. This, this is how God revealed himself to the Jews for hundreds of years. Without an animal sacrifice presented through an elaborate system of priests and ceremonies and religious laws, no one could come close to God. This was the norm for years. But as Simon reminded us, those animal sacrifices were pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. This is such good news and has major implications in how we relate to God, how we live our lives, and how we deal with each other. We'll look at those three points in more details. But first, let's remind ourselves of what God established for us by looking at the opening verses of our passage. And there's a simple outline on your notice sheet if you want to follow along or that helps you to follow along. Read with me verses 19 and 20. Therefore, 
Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. The writer has been making big claims about Jesus. He's saying Jesus is greater than the angels and all the heavenly realm. Jesus is greater than Moses and everything that Moses represents. Jesus is greater than all the priests that preceded him and which mediated between God and, and man. Jesus is greater and far more superior than the any high priest because he is a high priest or the high priest of a new covenant. In the old covenant, before Jesus came down, people could not approach God directly or they would be killed. People had to purify themselves, make themselves clean before they could approach God. Animal sacrifices, they had to present animal sacrifices, thousands of animals killed every day in the temple throughout history to present people before God. The blood of those animal sacrifices would be taken, would be sprinkled on people to make them and to render them clean. Now this concept may sound strange to our ears and, and we're not familiar with it, but the idea is that blood signifies life. If under the terms of the old covenant we wanted to draw close to God, our lives, which are marred by sin, would be consumed before a holy God unless, unless our guilt and sin are transferred to another life, and that life dies on our behalf. When God gave the Israelites a commandment not to eat blood in the Old Covenant, in the, in the, when they were in the desert, he explains that blood represents life. God said, For life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you, to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. It's like trying to enter Area 51 without authorized access. If you come close without the right badge or the right permission, you are disqualified. You'd be considered trespassing, unlikely shot and killed. We saw last week that all those sacrifices under the Old Covenant could not erase sins, though. They only made people clean on the outside. These sacrifices were pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice that ends the need for all sacrifices. He is the perfect sacrifice because he is blameless. He is sinless. He lived a sinless life so that he could present us eternally before a perfect God. He's the only reason we can enter the most holy place or the holy of holies. Now, the Holy of Holies is the most inner part of the temple of God. It's as close as you could possibly get to meeting God or to, see, to being close to him. So holy was this place that only one person from the entire nation of Israel could enter that place, but only once a year and only with blood to sprinkle to cover for his sin and for the sin of the people. If you were living in the Old Covenant period, the most holy place would likely have been a place that you stayed up many nights thinking about. On one hand, this is a big part of what you, big part of you wanted to be there. You wanted to enter it, to be in the presence of the God that saved your forefathers from the desert or from slavery, to be in the place where you can meet the God that delivered bread from heaven for your for your ancestors, the God that provided 
the God that provided you and, and you learned so much about and loved, it would have been a huge privilege to be in his presence and to be in the most holy place. At the same time, the place terrified you. You knew you couldn't handle being in God's glory. The Ark of the Covenant was placed there, and it reminded you of God's vast power and might. But the Ark also reminded you of your sin, as experienced by your forefathers. In the Ark, there were three things from Israel's journey with God that pointed to God's mercy and grace, and at the same time, to people's rebellion. These items marked God's grace. There was the manna, or the bread from heaven, which was a reminder of God's provision for people in the desert, but it was also a reminder of people's ungratefulness to God because they complained. There was Aaron's rod, which was a reminder of God's mercy in response to people's rebellion against God's authority and whom God put in authority. And there were the stone tablets, which reminded you of God's perfect law and how much you have failed to meet up to God's law and perfect law. Entering the most holy place was the most honorable, exhilarating, nerve-wracking experience any creature could long for, but it was beyond your reach. The, but that was the old covenant. In the new covenant, Jesus is our high priest, and he is the sacrifice. He offered his body on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice of an atonement. His spilled blood opens the way for us to approach God directly without the need for sacrifices or more mediators. Jesus took the wrath of God that was we deserve so that we can enjoy God and be in his presence forever. Isn't that amazing? What, when connecting to God was impossible or deadly, Jesus provides us a way that is free and life-giving. Remember, do, remember those two feelings of excitement uh, and anxiety about entering the most holy place? Well, in Jesus and through Jesus, we get all of the former without any of the latter. We get to enjoy God and be in his presence and, and, and find fulfillment in, in that. And we get none of the fear or trepidation that comes from being aware of God's judgment and holiness. And because Jesus lives, our eternal privileged access to God will last forever. It will not affect, it will not lose effect over time or be replaced by anything else. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain that separated the most holy place from the temple, from the rest of the temple, was torn in half. This was the curtain that symbolically separated man from God. And that curtain was torn at the time and the moment of Jesus' death signaling that the separation between God and man had vanished permanently and irreversibly. And so we must not fear to enter God's presence. Access to God was not a cosmic slip-up. Jesus, our high priest who is in charge of God's household, tore the curtain in half. It didn't accidentally rip. So instead of fear, let's have confidence when we, draw close, when we draw close to God, that he will not cast us out. He will not rebuff us. He will not reject us. In Jesus and through Jesus and because of Jesus, we have permission and freedom and authorization to relate to God and to be part of his family. And so if access to God is so available to us, the writer of Hebrew 
exhorts us and encourages us to do three things. They all begin with, let us. So let us look at them in order. Verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. The natural response to suddenly being granted access to the most defining and most exclusive and most life-giving experience is to seize that opportunity. Now that God is so available to us, so reachable and so close, let us draw near to him. But what does that mean? How do you do that? What does drawing near to God mean? Well, if you draw near to someone, you get to know that person intimately, what they like and they don't like, what they think about and how they behave in different circumstances. And when you draw close to someone, you also become more transparent to that person. It's like two people in a marriage. As the husband and the wife share more times and experiences together, they draw closer to each other and they know each other more. And in cases where the marriage is built on transparency and honesty, the husband and the wife become like each other. They share the same outlook on life, same ambition, same, same perspective. When we draw too close to God, we're invited to know God more closely, to understand him more deeply, to experience his love and his, and his embrace more deeply and more intimately. Drawing closer to God is an invitation to deepen our understanding of God's heart and mission for the world. And we do that primarily through reading God's word and understanding God's word that is written and that's available before us. That's why it is so important and it's, it's, it's recommended and highly encouraged to read the Bible and spend time in God's word. And as a result of drawing close to God, we will gradually become like him. We will speak his words, have his minds, share his perspective on things. We will be more like him and not the other way around because he is infinitely good and perfect and unchangeable. And so as we draw close to God, we will be more like Jesus and God will get the glory from that. But for that to happen, for us to draw close to God, for us to draw near to God and not be turned down, it's important to approach God in the right way. It's important to approach God according to his conditions and not our personal preferences or desires. And the conditions, what God expects of us, are not impossible for us to meet. Remember, God is not reluctantly opening his arms and wanting us to come to him. He's the one that took the initiative to come down and draw himself to us and reconcile us to himself, to himself so that we can go to him and be with him and be in his presence. He wants us to come to him. And if we're to do that, we're to do it with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. To approach God with a sincere heart, we're to come to him with honesty and transparency. We have to be real and genuine when talking to God, not pretentious or pretending that we are holy. We have to acknowledge our sin and how much we fall short of God's glory. God sees through us anyway. He knows our fault and weaknesses. The challenge is for us to confess those and to recognize them. God wants us to come to him 
And we come into that relationship when we confess our sins, but we don't come as equal partners into this relationship with God. We come as broken vessels wanting God's, God's uh, reconciliation, wanting God to restore us and give us life. We come to him seeking his embrace and restoration. And we trust that he will forgive us. He will welcome us. This is the assurance of faith that the verse talks about. We trust that if we come to God with undivided hearts that truly and deeply want to know him, then we will not be turned down. We will never be rejected by God because our hearts have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. Our bodies have been washed with pure water. The ability to draw near to God has nothing to do with us. It's not because of anything we did. It's always because of what God has done for us. We have permission to access God plainly and unmistakably because of what Jesus did. In the language of the Old Covenant, we are always ceremonially clean to come to God and draw close to him. So let's do that. Having established that, the writer of Hebrews makes a second implication, or the second implication. He says in verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. The opportunity to draw close to God is incredible, but we'll be tempted to take it for granted. At first, we'll find it exhilarating to be in God's presence and draw close to him. But over time, slowly, we find that Christianity might be tiring. Too many sacrifices and little recognition. Our friends may laugh at us or our faith, in our hard times, we might despair and feel like we want to give up. And if we're not careful and we don't guard our hearts, we end up putting our hope in other gods, be it technology or human progress or academics or even ourselves. We find that we've placed our hope there. Gradually, these human-made gods will crowd the true God out of our life. They will eat away at the sincerity that God required when we are to approach him and will think we are holy or more righteous, will depend more on them. But these gods, these, these false gods, will make us miserable because what they offer us is false hope and empty promises. They are fake gods offering fake promises and fake hope. And so we must not take our eyes off the real God, the real hope in Jesus Christ. As the letter to the Hebrews puts it, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And swervingly literally means to hold on to something that does not bend, that which is straight. The expression implies stability or that something is unchangeable. By holding unswervingly to God and to the Christian hope that Christ rules, we are to hold on to it without being shaken by external pressure or other circumstances to just grip onto it and not let go of it. This is difficult on most days. But we can base our commitment and our determination to hold on to this faith based on the faithfulness of God. We can persevere when we are persecuted or ridiculed for our faith because God will sustain us. And when we fail, when we stumble, he is faithful to his promises and he will forgive us and help us to get up and move on. We can make painful sacrifices as we wait for the coming of the kingdom 
Because God promised that he is bringing a new creation and he does not lie. We can look forward to that. He keeps his promises. So let us hold on to what we believe and expect that God will bring it about. And let's do that without wavering. The final call for us is, is to encourage us and to encourage one another. Verse 24 and 25 are phrased as two separate Sentences, two separate instructions, but structurally they're one. Uh, so let's look at that now. Verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how we may spare one another toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. In the context of drawing near to God, and holding firm to hope in Christ, this exhortation to encourage us reminds us that our faith is a communal faith. God calls us and individuals, and he will ask us and will give account as persons, but he puts us in a community, and he puts us in a group, and he expects us, and he wants us to operate and function as, as that, as members of a community, not as lone soldiers. And this is church. A group of people saved by God and trying, trying to draw close to God individually, personally, but also corporately. In the church, we are to consider how we may spare one another towards love and good deeds. In other words, we're called to pay attention to each other, to look after each other, and to care for each other. This is a deliberate act. I don't think the intention here is that we have a journal or a log for everybody in the church and to keep track of how to serve each one individually, although you might do that. Rather, it's about being aware of people around you and people in your midst. This could be people you see regularly on Sunday or members of your growth group, but again, it doesn't have to be limited to that. The idea about let us consider is that this is not a suggestion, a kind suggestion, kind of to say, consider one or two people that you want to help. But the emphasis is on trying to look for people and be always on the receiving and to welcome people and to encourage them in their walk of faith. The verb to spur here is, is, has, the, has the undertone of to provoke someone. Provoke can be a negative thing, but here it's meant to indicate that it's a conscious action. And we are all, what are we to spur one another towards? To love and to do good deeds, the verse says. We're to, we are to encourage each other to grow in love towards one another and to perform good deeds, which are the fruit of our faith. The Hebrews, the readers, the receivers of this letter had already been practicing that, and they've been distinguished by it. It's what set them apart. And the writer is telling them to do the same thing, to continue to do that and to grow in it, because that's what separates and distinguishes the Christian life. After Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he told them, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. By serving them in the most humble way that disciples could understand, Jesus was setting an example for serving each other and for following that example. 
A few minutes later, in the same setting, Jesus told his disciples another commandment. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Loving and serving one another is how the world notices that we are disciples of Jesus. And so it's very important that we do that. And obviously to do that, we need to be in each other's company and we need to be around each other. That's why the writer warns us against giving up on meeting with, other, with others altogether. The failure of some to continue attending the gathering of the community is dangerous because it's seen as an abandonment. It's seen as forsaking the community. This is the same word that is used when, by Jesus when he was hung on the cross and he cried, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? The idea is that when you are united to a body of believers, to church members, you are in some unspoken covenant with them. You grow in faith together, we endure hardship together, celebrate God's blessings together, we become one in Christ. Evidently, some people were regularly skipping what could be considered church meetings in the letter. It could have been to avoid persecution or maybe apathy or just for different reasons. Whatever the point is, whatever the reason is, the point is that missing out on opportunities where Christians could meet up and encourage one another is dangerous because missing on those opportunities will weaken our faith when we don't receive encouragement and ultimately that might weaken or hurt our witness. Since encouragement can happen and cannot happen in isolation, we need to make it a point or a priority to gather regularly for mutual encouragement. And the big context for this is that the nearing of the day, last verse. This is in reference to the day of the Lord or the second coming. This is the time when Jesus Christ will return in all his glory to judge the world and rule over the world without contestation. It's the end of the world we know it and the beginning and the culmination of the new creation which began in us when God recreated us and we were reborn and God gave us new hearts. That day may appear far, certainly now than from the time of the writing of this letter. But in the grand scheme of things, from God's perspective, it is near, considering the eternity that is coming beyond this day. And that day will come suddenly, like a thief in the night. We don't know when it will happen. So we must be ready at all times and not forfeit opportunities to encourage each other to love and to do good deeds. To conclude, God is in heaven but he descended to our world to bring us closer to him. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have confidence to draw near to God without fear or shame. If you'd like to do that, all you have to do is come to grips with who you are before God. Confess your sin and ask God for forgiveness. He is faithful to his promises and he will forgive you and give you a new heart to live for him. And, you're, and you, if you're feeling less inclined to draw near to God and still prefer to keep your distance, remember that God loves you. And he did the unimaginable to bring you closer to him. There's nobody else. There's no hope. 
There's no idols, no gods, nothing out there in the world can give you what God already gave you in Jesus Christ. So hold on to your faith tightly and keep trusting God. He is the only one that can deliver you. And remember that you're not alone on this, on this journey. So open yourself to receive encouragements from others and be prepared to encourage others to live for God and his gospel. And let us all not forget that the day of the Lord is near. Let's pray. Just take a moment to reflect on that and uh, respond and reevaluate your position, and then I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you because your love for us is unbelievable, Lord. You gave yourself to us when we are sinners and we can't be in your presence. We'd be consumed by our, by our sinfulness. You opened the door for us to come to you. And you have your arms open and you want us to welcome, in, to welcome us to your presence and to be with you eternally, perfect, forever. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Thank you because it washes us clean and makes us holy. We pray, Lord, that we can receive that and we can accept that. And we pray, Lord, that you help us to draw close to you and to hold on to faith. And in the midst of that, and as we do that, help us, Lord, to encourage one another. We ask and we pray for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.